This is what people want from their police. They want their police to protect and serve. Norm Snapper says policing in America is in crisis. The former Seattle police chief points to an increase in police aggression, militarization, a lack of transparency and accountability, plus racial concerns that add to the mistrust of police in communities of color. I'm not shy about saying that I've seen what doesn't work and what failures we've made as an institution, and so I'm just one voice suggesting here's what does work or can work. In his new book, To Protect and Serve, Snapper details his vision about how to fix America's police through training, national standards, citizen involvement, and a community policing approach that would build relationships and trust. Coming up, Norm Snapper. I'm Enrique Cerna, and this is Conversations. Norm Snapper. Welcome. Thank you. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Well, I guess timing is the word as far as um, what's happening in the world today and in our country. And your book comes out to protect and serve and how to fix America's police. That title, to protect and serve, is it still valid today? Oh, it's absolutely valid. Uh, I think too often we reduce police work to slogans, and I was trying to avoid that in titling this book, but in conversation with my publisher, uh, my executive editor said, look, this is what people want from their police. They want their police to protect and serve. And I said, okay, we can go with that title. And then we, then we spent, obviously, most of our time talking about the meaning of this book, and I thought it was a little presumptuous to say this is this is you know this is how you fix police. On the other hand, uh, I'm not shy about saying that I've seen what doesn't work and what failures we've made as an institution. And so I'm just one voice suggesting here's what does work or can work. And you have been very open about saying, as a police chief and as a police officer. You, at times, didn't do a very good job. Yeah, that's hard to hear, but necessary. And I think it's, you know, I don't know of anybody who has not made mistakes in his or her life. And it seems to me that the more we're willing to own up to them, to take in the meaning of those mistakes and and to learn from those mistakes, then we can share that knowledge with others. Uh, I I was going to just say, in, in the wake of any number of of major incidents across the country in the last several years, I was getting phone calls. Well, after Ferguson, for example, during the protests in the aftermath of the Michael Brown shooting, well, what should we do, Chief? And I said, for God's sakes, not what I did in Seattle in 1999. Let's talk about the way you started this book, because you reimagined, and speaking of Ferguson, you reimagined Ferguson. You reimagined that deadly confrontation between uh, Officer Darren Wilson and Michael Brown. Tell me about why you decided to do that. I, I was, like, like most other Americans, um, I, I could have easily been content to say that that was a controversial shooting, which I think is a euphemism. Uh, but it was certainly a shooting that could have been avoided. And the question is how? And I, and and. <clears throat> since the police, excuse me, don't really 
have much influence uh, on people's private thoughts and their personal beliefs and so forth, uh, but do have the capacity to reimagine how an incident might have taken place, that there is value in doing that. It's not just debriefing. It's not just doing a critical review of, a, of an incident that, that turned out tragically. It is really digging deep and asking ourselves, is there something about the nature of the relationship between white cops and young black men, for example, that is worthy of examination, that is worthy of, of plumbing until we get really to the heart of, of the problem. And so what I attempted to do here was, you know, sort of turn things on, on their head and just say, Darren Wilson started his shift at 6.30 in the morning. He handled a couple of calls. I was a cop for 34 years. I know what those calls mean. Uh, he's sort of waiting for what's next in the queue, the 911 queue. Uh, he handles that call. And then he's driving down the street uh, uh, to meet his girlfriend for lunch. Uh, his girlfriend, who would later become his wife, uh, and driving down a, a, a main drag of Ferguson, he encounters two young African-American men walking in the middle of the street. We all know the story. We all sort of know what happened. What we don't really know, and what's so important for us to know, was what was in the mind, what was in the heart, what was in the uh, education and training, uh, and for that matter, in the equipment of, of, of Officer Darren Wilson that might have contributed to, to that outcome. And so I imagined it as Darren Wilson being a calm, competent, mature, uh, professional who had the kind of self-confidence and the kind of association with young black men that he could speak freely and comfortably and respectfully to Michael Brown. Now, Michael Brown wasn't behaving uh, as we would want, uh, you know, 18-year-olds to behave. But he's sort of behaving as 18-year-olds, some of them, do behave. Couldn't he get that in advance? Couldn't he understand that Michael Brown is all about challenging authority, questioning his right to be stopped, even though he's very obviously breaking the law, and had, in fact, broken the law at that convenience store when he stole a handful of cheroots? Uh, or cigarillos, but he, 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 meaning Darren Wilson, could have produced a different outcome. Likewise in Cleveland with Tamir Rice uh, in, in North Charleston, South Carolina, uh, with Walter Scott, in Chicago with Laquan Mc, Mc, McDonald. These are people who would be alive today. Tamir Rice, poor lonely boy on a snowy field in Cleveland, would be a teenager today were it not for the fact that Timothy Lohman, the officer who shot and killed him, did something fatally wrong. It didn't have to happen. You say that American policing today is in crisis. What do you mean by that? I think we need only pick up a newspaper, listen to a podcast, watch the news, to see an, yet another example of how deeply divided are America's police officers from the citizens they serve. Nowhere is that more true than in uh, communities of color, young people, poor people, people who historically have had the toughest time with their local police. We're in crisis, and, and I, it, it's doubtful that anyone w would assert otherwise today, just looking at the incidents. Now, those single incidents don't tell the whole story, 
when a police officer does a, a spectacularly heroic job, does something wonderful, uh, we may, but probably won't, hear about that. And we have a whole bunch of cops who are just how I was describing my hypothetical Darren Wilson. They're confident because they've been well-trained. They're confident because they've not uh, eliminated whatever fears they may have on the job, but they've learned to manage them. They understand what signals their bodies are telling them. Hey, I think I'm scared here. How should I behave when I'm scared? Well, probably not impulsively, probably not angrily, probably with patience. You know, we can de-escalate our own tensions. Much is being made these days of de-escalating tensions between community and police. But I know when I'm afraid. I know what my body's telling me, and it's a gift. It's what it's telling me is you could really botch this situation. Uh, it could result in embarrassment or it could result in death. If you don't want those kinds of outcomes, pay attention to what your body is telling you and, and, and bring to bear your professionalism, your training, your education, and your patience. So let's talk about how to fix things, um, which Obviously, it couldn't be something that could happen overnight. But where do we start? I think we start by setting national standards for policing. It's amazing the extent to which one of society's most delicate and demanding and often dangerous jobs goes largely unsupervised. And, I, and I, I'd, I'd like for that thought to sink in. It's not just that the sergeant's sometimes in the office doing paperwork and not out in the streets and riding along with officers and covering their calls and so on and so forth. That, all that's important. It's really important. But we don't have a set of unifying, uh, mutually agreed upon, and by mutually I mean community and police, society and police. We don't have standards in the areas of procedural justice. Stop and frisk. Is there another police practice that alienates young people and not so young people, particularly in black communities where you'll hear a father, where you'll hear a, a former county executive say, I was, I've been stopped eight times in my life. I'm an educated man. I'm a man of the cloth. Uh, I have held responsible positions. I've been a candidate for governor in this state, and I have been stopped eight times for no apparent reason. I've been asked, what are you doing here? As if my skin color denies me access to, a, to a, an American street or a, a street in Seattle or King County. It's just crazy. And so I think we need to start with standards that set uh, minimums for, for professional competence in stop and frisk, search and seizure, laws of arrest, seized and forfeited assets, which I think constitutes a real vein of corruption in the institution. Um, and I don't necessarily even mean sort of venal and personal corruption. I'm talking about the kind of corruption that comes from systematic bias, systematic discrimination. And then, of course, use of force, especially lethal force. There ought to be a standard that says whether you're a Ferguson cop or you work for the NYPD or Seattle or San Diego or Detroit or any other city, you know what the standard is for use of lethal force. You know when you can and cannot uh, pull, pull that gun and pull its trigger. But we don't have that standard. What would that standard look like? Because it seems like a, a, the type of thing that if you're in a situation where there is, it gets tense 
it's like, okay, what's that standard? You know, you're not going to be doing that. Well, and 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 if in fact we set the standard, and then we establish policies and procedures and training, we acculturate new police officers to those standards. It becomes second nature. It's in the nature of police work that you're going to encounter stressful, oftentimes dangerous, uh, and sometimes terribly frightening situations. And yet, as those officers did in in, in Dallas uh, last week, you're going to run toward the gunfire, not away from it, because that's what you're getting paid for. And it's because you also have that sense of duty and responsibility that says, yeah, there are times when I'm going to take a real risk as a police officer. The, the, the one thing I noticed in watching the video of uh, the Dallas situation was that uh, as the gunfire was happening, the officers with people on the street were telling people to get down. Yes. Get down. And then, you know, to, so to trying to do the protect first, yep. and then they move forward. Well, I can tell you, uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was watching the, the, the same uh, footage, Enrique, and I kept telling myself, God, I'm proud of these police officers, the ones that get it, the ones that really understand that a part of their salary is dedicated to taking risks. You want to make them wise and prudent to the fullest extent possible, but eventually you're going to have to take a risk in this business. Uh, and I, I, I can't tell you how uh, wonderful it made me feel in the midst of a horrific week for, for everybody in this country to watch those officers run toward gunfire when protesters, who ironically were being protected and served by officers who were being protested against their practices. So that captured for me the, 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 the drama and the, and the real intense um, contradiction that is associated with police work. Black Lives Matters, protesters saying, we, we do not like police policies and police practices, and we're gonna take to the streets to demonstrate our opposition to them, uh, specifically these incidents. And here are the police in a peaceful fashion uh, protecting their right to do that, their First Amendment rights. That's police work at its finest. And then to see the, the personal courage on the part of those officers was, was just reinforcement of what I've known all my career. And cops, uh, uh, you know, in their finest moments are just the best. I mean, they're, they're, they're extraordinary people. And for the good cops, I would say they deserve better. They deserve to be, they don't deserve to be saddled uh, with the, the murder of, of, of Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina. Here's a man running away from a police officer who very calmly pulls his weapon and fires it repeatedly. Shoots the man in the back, drops him to the ground, uh, and then attempts to set it up hmm. by bringing his taser back to the, to the body to show that, that he was in a struggle with this man who in fact was only trying to escape. Laquan McDonald, here is a 17-year-old kid walking away from about six or seven police officers, one of whom decides, for, for, for reasons that I suspect will come out at his murder trial, to shoot him in the back and then go over and pump another 15, 16 rounds in him. That's murder. Uh, and, and, and when bad officers get away with that, and worse, when good officers cover up for that kind of behavior or simply don't speak up in the presence of that kind of behavior, 
the community loses more and more respect for police. And good cops don't deserve that. They deserve much better. One of the big challenges, and I, this is probably part of what you're suggesting that we try to fix, is the, the, this, this divide uh, with police and communities of color. Yeah. I mean, you just laid out a number of incidents that happened here, and the fact that you know police and black males and Latinos as well, sure. there is a problem there, and there are incidents there. What, where do we get the trust? How can we regain trust? I, I can give you a pretty good idea of how we cannot or will not regain trust, and that is embracing some cosmetic version, public relations version of community policing. True community policing demands uh, a partnership. And I want to <laughs> sort of emphasize that word. In a, in a partnership, one partner doesn't go off and make unilateral and arbitrary decisions, doesn't speak for the other partner. They meet, they confer, they collaborate, and they do this routinely. They do it automatically because if you have any respect at all for your partner, you're not going to be making those unilateral decisions. And the police are, I, I'm sorry, as an institution, fond of making decisions on their own. Thank you very much. We're the cops and you're not. So we will decide what's to be done if, in fact, anything is to be done. Uh, and that's just plain wrong in a free and democratic society. Our citizens, to the extent that they are interested in the issues, to the extent they're interested in participating in a partnership, many are not, and that's their right as Americans, will join together with their police and they will make joint decisions about policies and procedures and crisis management. They will co-plan, co-prepare, uh, and, and, and co-police protests. What a concept. Uh, the citizens don't want to do that, those protesting, because, for fear, I'm convinced, of, of, of being accused of, of being co-opted by the police. The police don't want to do it because they're convinced the citizens know nothing about public safety. They're the professionals. They'll decide how they're going to police WTO or any other protest. But think about Think about the right to assemble, the right to express oneself, a basic, I call the Constitution our, our secular Bible of the land, basic, basic rights of, of, of American citizens, assembling with their police to get closer to the venue, because the reason, you know, cops are pushing people back and pushing them back is, is their fear, sometimes justified, that if we let protesters get close to WTO ministers or to Republican or Democratic presidential candidates or, or uh, uh, you know, those who are assembled to uh, begin the process of electing a president, we, we're many, many, many years away from building the kind of trust between citizens and police that we can actually begin to make of the police a people's police. But that's my dream. I, I think the police in America belong to the people, not the other way around. I'm talking to former Seattle Police Chief Norm Stamper, who is the author of To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. One of the things that um, is happening at the uh, academy here in Washington State, and uh, maybe it's happening elsewhere in the country because uh, others are trying to take this up, Surar, who is the executive director of the, of the academy, um, is an advocate of this uh, guardian philosophy 
uh, and lessening this idea of a warrior mentality. What do you think of that? I'm a very strong supporter of it. Uh, as I've written in my book, and I hope Sue will forgive me because I'm a huge fan of hers, uh, Guardian is fine. It's, it's a Platonian uh, concept, and the idea basically is, is that the is Guardian is here to protect society. But in, in Plato's day, uh, Guardians actually were lawmakers not just law enforcers. So I have a little intellectual <laughs> quibble uh, at, at long You're such a snob, are you? Such, <laughs> a, such a snob. But the, that's not the police job. The police job is to enforce the laws. And it is certainly true that we have taken on, in the pejorative sense of the word, uh, in, the, in the negative connotation of that word warrior, we have taken on a, a, a very militaristic, militaristic approach yeah. to policing. And Sue's absolutely right. We have to reverse that trend. I'll tell you where it began. It began when Richard Nixon proclaimed drugs public enemy number one and declared all-out war on them. Uh, in wildly disproportionate numbers, the war was declared against young people and poor people and people of color. It has resulted in mass incarceration. It has resulted in the expenditure, this drug war, of $1.3 trillion since Nixon made that declaration, uh, we have literally incarcerated tens of millions of our fellow Americans, tens of millions. And then we wonder about fractured families in the African-American or the Latino community. We wonder uh, uh, why we have a, uh, this such a cliche and sexist at that, a female head of household as opposed to a two-parent household. So many variations on that theme, so many for many wonderful ways to define family these days. But it is certainly true that, that uh, public policy and law uh, in, in the drug enforcement arena has created a situation where we have fractured families, where we have destroyed lives. And I, my fellow cops would say, we didn't destroy those lives. They made a decision to put that needle in their arm or to you know, the, sell the, the crack cocaine on the street corner, so on and so forth. Well, the systemic implications of the drug war as, as they relate uh, both to militarization and to continuing patterns of racism and discrimination uh, really do suggest that we take a look. Is, is our drug policy working? Well, we've had this conversation in the past. I think you have my successor on, on, right. on one of your shows. And Gil Kurlikowski said to you, well, Norm's wrong. He said, <laughs> I called an end to the drug war. Yeah, I uh, wait, 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 Gil. You said the drug war's over? <laughs> We're continuing to expend $70 billion a year fighting that drug war. And it's time to stop it. It's really insane. The money we're investing or squandering in the drug war could be used for prevention, for education, for treatment, and it could also be helpful, uh, I'm convinced, as I write about in this book, uh, in helping to finance those standards that I was talking about. So we can license every police officer, pull their license if they can or won't play by the rule. You can do the same with an agency. Ferguson came dangerously close to being uh, in effect, by today's language, decertified as a law enforcement agency. Anyway, I digress. I think if we were to uh, replace prohibition, which is a 
totally failed, bankrupt public policy with a regulatory system rigorously enforced, we would have safer streets, healthier communities, far few of our own fellow citizens would be hooked up, put in the backseat of a police car and driven to jail and ultimately prosecuted and sentenced to long prison terms. We can turn all of that around and in the process, take our police officers off the front lines as the foot soldiers in the war on drugs. We wonder why young African-American men or people generally who hang out on the street corners and engage in either use or trafficking of small quantities, typically, of, 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 of drugs, and who are, for the most part, nonviolent offenders, we, we could pull the police officers back from that enforcement picture and start to establish much more positive and harmonious relationships. One of the things that you have argued is that you say that we must establish a meaningful and muscular role for the federal government in local policing. Uh, not everybody likes that idea. So why? Well, uh, many don't, and I do offer that suggestion with apologies to my libertarian friends, <laughs> to my Republican small government advocates and so forth. And here's what I say. Right now, the Department of Justice will conduct an investigation for cause when there is uh, sufficient reason to believe that a department is systematically violating the civil liberties, the civil rights of, of our fellow citizens. Seattle is, in fact, under a consent decree. The feds pulled into town and said, uh, you've done wrong. You've done it in a patterned way. The, the inequities, the inequalities, and so forth are, are not just bad for business, they constitute violations of the Constitution of the United States. So we're going to take you to court. Uh, it would be ideal if we can reach agreement, which the city did, and I, I think in kind of a tortured way finally got around to an agreement. And it's helping a lot to improve, I think, police policies and practices. The same thing has happened in Los Angeles. It happened in Cincinnati. Uh, not that those departments have been miraculously transformed, but real improvement and progress is being shown. So imagine <laughs> calling the Justice Department in to do an investigation after the fact. You've already screwed up. You've already done wrong. Now let's investigate you when there are 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country. One constitution, 18,000 law enforcement agencies. That's it's kind of ridiculous to think that we can investigate uh, allegations at the federal level and make meaningful progress in improving those policies and practices. So I'm saying, I'll repeat myself here for a second, that if the, if the federal government, in conjunction with the locals, local police officers rank and file, police union, police chiefs and sheriffs, and elected officials, and vitally important to this equation, citizen activists coming together to say, what should be the policy, the standard for use of lethal force? The standard for stop and frisk, the standard for all these areas of, of procedural justice. Carve those out, ain't gonna happen by Tuesday of next week, but carve out those policies, uh, or those standards rather, set them and then enforce them uh, through a certification process. As I said, if you show that you can and will, and in fact do play by the rules, then we appreciate you, we recognize you. I think policing is, is, is uh, infinitely, uh, is in a position where we might really understand 
what we pay a cop uh, for, for the kind of terrifically demanding and difficult work. That it's so sensitive. One little mistake, and, and you got a firefight. You got a, a, a terrible conflagration, conflagration between community and citizens. So let's set standards. Let's move toward professionalizing police work. Uh, and then let's revoke the license for an agency that can't or won't, an officer that can't or won't play by the rules. The president, uh, in his remarks at uh, the memorial in Dallas, has said that... Um, we ask too much of the police officers that, um, you know, we ask them to protect and serve, but we're also asking them in many ways to be social workers uh, and so many other things in trying to just do their jobs. Yeah. you agree with that? You know, I do. Uh, it, it, you know, language structures reality for me. Language is just terribly important. And picking the right words to say, this is a definition of the problem, uh, becomes so important when we're just waiting to pounce on any definition of the problem that we disagree with. And that happens a lot in police work for very understandable reasons. I do believe that we're not asking police officers to remedy poverty. We're not asking police officers to remedy uh, uh, patterned inequality, discrimination in, in banking, discrimination in real estate, discrimination in healthcare, discrimination in education, on and on and on. We're really not asking our cops to do that. So I don't think we're asking too much of police officers uh, in that context. Where we ask too much of them is, is to perform uh, superbly in the face of uh, all the conditions that I just described that that affect police community relations. So a well-educated community, a well-educated police department will say, that's the job of the cops, and that's not. Uh, and let's put our heads together and do what we can to improve education, to improve health care, to, 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 to get jobs for people. That's such a huge factor. Uh, in, in, uh, in, in crime and in community police relations and, and to generally help elevate uh, economically and in every other important way uh, all communities so that no, nobody goes to bed hungry. Kids are safe uh, as, as they're getting a quality education, uh, on and on and on. I'm, I'm not trying to describe a utopia here. What I'm trying to describe is or, or suggest is we can do better yeah. as a society. You know, one of the things that has really changed the relationship between communities, communities of color and, and police around the country, and all communities maybe, is the fact that we have phones now that give you the ability to to shoot video and to shoot, to, to you know, take a picture. Yeah. And uh, which has really changed the dynamic, which is probably why so many things are now have come to a head. But what do you think of the idea, and it's being done here on an experimental basis in Seattle with body cameras? I think body cameras are essential. I think uh, they will be seen as indispensable in the future, not too distant future. Has that been a change for you? Because didn't, didn't yes, you one time? You, you didn't. Oh, uh, no, you my, were against them. My first reaction, Andrea, <laughs> was, I, look, I don't, I don't want to put cameras that, first of all, I <laughs> This is back in the day. Yeah, right. I had an image huge, of a big right. camera yeah, yeah, on a police yeah, officer's yeah. shoulder. 
they're tiny little devices, and my God, they show a lot. Uh, and, and you put sound to them, they can really help to answer the question, what really happened here? We need to do that, we absolutely need to do it. But yes, I was opposed to it. I thought that it would uh, invade the privacy of the citizens that our police officers were interacting with. You know, oftentimes when the, when the cops are on the scene, citizens are not at their best. They're angry, they're hurt, they're drunk, they're drugged, they're under the influence of a variety of emotions. And, uh, and so I had major opposition when I first heard that suggestion. It was many years ago, as a matter of fact. But over time, I took a neutral position. Well, I can be persuaded, and now I'm a very staunch advocate. Let me tell you a, a, a quick story. <clears throat> I was at home, I live in the San Juan Islands in a little cabin on a mountain, on an island. Uh, it's a peaceful and idyllic life, but I can't, I just can't let go of my passion for policing, my passion for justice, and it really matters to me. So I watch a lot, I read a lot, I get a lot over the, the, the internet. And I read the first account of the John T. Williams shooting here in Seattle. And I thought, well, that's, that's a tragedy. But you don't come at a cop with a knife. You need to know that you don't come at a cop with a knife. And I wasn't shy about telling the citizens of San Diego for 28 years that I was a member of that department or the citizens of Seattle. You pull a gun on a police officer, uh, you've punched your ticket. I mean, sorry. I mean, that's a lethal weapon. Uh, sudden violent death is a real prospect for the officer. And under those circumstances, he or she is perfectly legally justified to use lethal force rather that that wouldn't have to happen but please don't do it. And also citizens, keep your hands where cops can see them. Yeah. That's important stuff. So I would you know, try to educate the citizenry about that. But here I am uh, listening to an account on the radio and then reading a report and then a day later seeing dash cam footage. Didn't actually show the shooting. It showed enough. It showed plenty. And then listening, filling in the blanks, to, I forget, six or seven witnesses. Eyewitnesses right there saw it. John T. Williams was not coming at that officer with an open knife. It was a small pocket knife. He had a carving board in the other hand. Furthermore, as I get wound up on subjects <laughs> like this, why didn't the officer know who John T. Williams was? All the other beat cops pretty much knew who he was. They knew that he was a partially deaf public uh, an inebriate who may have had some mental issues. They knew that he was a wood carver. Not only does John T. Williams have a knife in one hand, he's got a piece of wood in the other. And if our B cops know the citizens they're serving, they would know that that's John T. Williams. And they would try to help him across the street if he needs it. Uh, listening to what happened after the, the, the uh, the officer leaves the field of vision on that dash cam, I was heart sick. I was just sickened. And to its credit, my old police department made an announcement that this is one of the most egregious and wrongful shootings in modern history of the Seattle Police Department. I was so proud to, to, to hear uh, an assistant chief describe it as such. So these cameras are worth their weight in gold. I was interviewing a, a guy in, in, in my own neighborhood, African-American, uh, who's a chef at, at, a, at a local cafe, and a good one, I might add. Uh, I won't name names because that's getting too personal. <laughs> but he, he, was, he, he, uh, he came out from the kitchen one night when I was s sitting and having my meal, 
And he mentions, you're writing a book, I heard. Yeah, what's it about? I told him, he said, I grew up in Watts for four years of my life, South Central, Los Angeles. And my old man, uh, and I grew up with my father, uh, took me to Westwood uh, at, at age four because he was afraid for my safety. Part of the fear was what was going on in the neighborhood. Another part of the fear was interacting with the police. You don't want to hear that if you're, you're a cop for 34 years. On the other hand, it was necessary to hear it. I said, do you mind if I interview you? I said, I, he, he said, my father gave me the talk. We've all heard about the I've talk. given my son the talk. Of course, I hope you have. I've actually given my son, and I have no excuse <laughs> for giving my son, yeah. who's now 50 years of age, which is terribly wrong. Well. It's just wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong. Anyway, uh, I, I think it's a parental responsibility to talk about how people, but particularly young people of color, should act in the presence of the police to minimize risks. No matter how offensive that is to my fellow police officers, I say to them, deal with it. If you can't get why a, a black mom would talk to her four or five or 14-year-old black son uh, about what to do and not to do in the presence of police and somehow declare that racist, I, you know, Open your heart, open your mind, think about you. It's maybe real hard to do as a, as, as a young black father or mother. Uh, and, and, and what it would feel like to not have that talk. Anyway, I, inter I said, can I interview? We go to our favorite coffee haunt and uh, I pull out my iPhone, which I'm now holding in my right hand. I used it to record the interview. Uh, when we finished, I said, okay, uh, at the, at the time, it was uh, Tamir Rice, it was Eric Garner, it was Akai Gurley, it was Laquan McDonald hadn't broken yet, Walter Scott hadn't broken yet, but certainly Michael Brown had. And so I went through a whole litany of these names and I said, it, what, what, what's happening now from your point of view as a citizen and, and an African-American citizen? And he said, nothing, not one thing is new. He said, what's new is, and he picked up my recording device, my iPhone, tapped its screen and said, this is educating white people about what is going on in my community and has been. He's now taking himself back in history to South Central Los Angeles. He said, there's nothing going on today that surprises an African-American or a Latino uh, family. Uh, and he said, it, it, it's it's really great that that white middle class people can now see body cam, dash cam, some other evidence of of what actually took place, and then compare that to the official record, to what the spokesperson said to the media, to how it gets presented. That disconnect is huge, and and I fear that it's that it's growing larger, and and policing is in crisis. And part of the reason is because of technology uh, demonstrating the gap between what the police say happened and what actually happened. We have a lot of work to do, don't we? We have a huge amount of work to do, but it can be, uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm always an optimist. Uh, Nelson Mandela was um, interviewed one time and he was asking, you know, ending apartheid is impossible. 
Mr. Mandela, of course you know it's absolutely impossible. It's deeply ingrained. It's not just decades long, it's generations long. It, it's impossible. And he said, you know, a lot of things in this world are impossible until they happen. And, he, and, uh, and I think about marriage equality, I think about the civil rights movement, I think about uh, a half a dozen major social changes that have happened in my lifetime uh, as a result of community organization, community mobilization, conveying in strong, forceful terms what we as a people find acceptable in our name because the police are hired by the cops. <laughs> Their salaries are, I, I mean, they're hired by, by the, the citizens. The citizens. And, and a police officer's salary is paid. You know, you used to get it all the time. I'd, when I'd stop a car as a beat cop, I pay your salary. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, yeah, 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 you and everybody else. In point of fact, they were my boss. And now I choose to see them as partner as opposed to boss. But I also choose to see the citizens as the senior partner in that relationship, a people's police. The book is called To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. Norm Stamper is the author. He's also the author of Breaking Rank. He's a former Seattle police chief, uh, spent 34 years as a police officer working as a cop, and uh, still hasn't lost his passion for it. Thank you so much for your time. And, you know, uh, let's just keep working at it, huh? What choice do we have? Right. <laughs> Thank right. you, Andrique, very much. I appreciate it. We'll talk more later. <laughs>